Having gone through uh, a year of pandemic, I think we all know intimately that there is suffering in the world. Whether it's hearing of over 400,000 people contracting COVID in one day in India, that over 3 million people have died of the disease worldwide that we know of, of the suffering of those who have lost jobs, family members, suffered mental health issues, or any of the various other ways this disease has hit us. But COVID is only one of the many ways that people around the world are suffering. It's just perhaps this one has been a bit more real to us than some of the others, because we've all been directly affected by it in one way or another. Yet before and through the pandemic, there have been many other ways that people suffer and are suffering. There are wars going on in Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, and other places. There's religious persecution in the Middle East, India, Sudan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and North Korea, to name just a few. So why does this happen? Why does God allow so much suffering in the world that he created? Suffering occurs on various scales from very large events, such as earthquakes, famines, floods, and wars that can affect large areas and very large numbers of people, down to individual suffering, such as bereavement, sickness, handicap, broken relationships, depression, and many similar uh, causes and feelings. Whatever the scale of suffering, however, whatever the scale of the event that causes suffering, it's worth remembering that suffering is at heart always personal. It's unique to the individual. If I'm suffering, you can't feel my pain, even if you can recognize it and empathize with it. How a particular circumstance affects you may well be different from how it affects me. And as people living in the developed world, we should also recognize that some of what we consider suffering is more like normal life for so many people in the world. Now, I'm not saying that people in the UK don't suffer, and losing a close relative, for example, causes the same pain wherever you are. But we have safety nets, and we have support mechanisms that just don't exist in many places, whether it's the health service, the social security, there's the charities we have that provide help and support for particular issues and conditions. And we have far more collectively and as individuals in terms of money and physical resources than the vast majority of the world to help when we're afflicted. But given that suffering is so widespread, why is it a challenge for some in accepting the gospel? For many religions, suffering isn't a challenge in the way it is for Christianity. After all, we proclaim and believe in a God who is both good and all-powerful. But if that's true, why doesn't he step in and do something to stop human suffering? C.S. Lewis summed up the objection as, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures aren't happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Now, there is no one simple answer to suffering. But that argument that C.S. Lewis was presenting has some basic flaws in it, not least being an understanding of what actually causes suffering in the world. It was never God's intention that people should suffer. When God created the world, 
It was very good. Unfortunately, mankind quickly spoiled that by rebelling. And at that point, not only did we spoil our relationship with God, but we damaged the whole of creation in the process. Genesis 3, 17 to 19 lets us see this. To the man, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat from it all of your days. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Suffering entered the world as a consequence of our sin, and it will remain in the world and part of our experience until God remakes the world at the end of time. Indeed, if you look at the major causes of suffering in the world, you can actually see that many of them, most of them probably, are actually down to man. While rains may fail and cause famine, for example, there is actually enough food in the world to feed everybody and cover that sort of disaster and feed people. Yet a third of the world, including us, a third of the world's population, including us, is busy killing itself through obesity, through overeating and lack of exercise, and regularly throws away horrendous amounts of food. Yet the remaining two-thirds of the world's population live hand-to-mouth, barely keeping their families fed and vulnerable to even those slightest change in the weather. Similarly, the developed countries are releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at unprecedented rates, causing global warming, the extremes of weather that we're seeing more and more around the world. Yet it's the developing world that's being hit by the results, with droughts, with floods, with fertile soil being washed away, and with the very existence of the land they stand on being threatened by the risk of rising sea levels. And how do we respond to this in the West? We reduce our carbon output, but we do it by shifting our production to China. So we can claim we've met our responsibility, we're all right, we've reduced our carbon output, but we haven't changed our consumption. We still want all those things that we have, that we've become used to in our throwaway society, where a t-shirt might be worn once or twice and then discarded because it's so cheap. The things we consume still need to be made. And by moving that production overseas, we add to the damage to the world by now shipping those goods halfway around the world. By those choices, by our choices, we cause suffering for others. And direct action by men can also cause suffering. War is an obvious case. And the base cause of war are always human sin, often on both sides. Sins such as greed, hate, jealousy, and intolerance. And in any disaster, suffering is made worse by these types of sin. Aid can be misappropriated by the rich and powerful in the affected country. What's left of people's possessions after an earthquake or a flood can be looted. And we've even heard recently of the locals who are supposed to be being helped being abused by those who are supposed to be helping them. And even more individual suffering is often also the result of sin. It can be our sin. After all, if we consume excessive alcohol, we're likely to suffer from the effects of a hangover. And if we don't take the warning from that, 
alcoholism, illness, and potential death may well follow. More often, perhaps, though, it's other people's sin that causes us suffering, and our sin, other people to suffer. Some crimes, like murder, adultery, robbery, all have a direct impact on other people, and not just the victim normally, but, the, but families and friends as well. But it's not just headline sins like these that cause others to suffer. Greed, lust, lying, and many others all have their price as well. In fact, some people have estimated 95% of the suffering in the world comes as a consequence of sin. And it leads us to look at the question about why suffering, and rephrase it, if sin results in suffering, why does God allow sin? Well, God created mankind to have a loving relationship with him. But for a relationship to be real, it has to be mutual. Both partners in the relationship must want to be in that relationship. In human terms, if this isn't the case, then it's an abusive relationship with one partner controlling the other. And in the relationship between God and man, creator and created, if God hadn't given us the free will to choose to love him or not, we would essentially be robots. But even knowing that we would sin and all the consequences that would follow from that, God went ahead and made us anyway. And he already knew how he was going to rescue us from that sin. Immediately after Adam and Eve fell, we see the first hint that God gave of his plan in Genesis 3.15, where he was speaking to the serpent. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. As Christians, we're not exempt from the sorts of suffering we've just been talking about, the natural disasters, robbery, and whatever. But we also need to recognize that we're going to suffer as well because we are Christians. Jesus warns the disciples of this in John 17, 18 to 21. He said, if the world hates you, be aware it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. As Christians, we've been called to a difficult path. We need to prepare ourselves and be ready to face suffering for our Lord. Peter put it in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. And as we saw in the series on Revelation, the coming of God's kingdom into the world is preceded by birth pangs, and the church has its share of those. For example, in Revelation 12, 17, it says, Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children. Who were those children? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, Christians. Suffering isn't good. But God can and does use suffering for good purposes. Our salvation came through Jesus' suffering. 
And in our lives too, suffering can result in good. One way is that God uses suffering to draw us to Christ. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You may remember Roy talking about this in the series on Revelation. The various seals, the bowls, the trumpets are all God trying to get the attention of a world that thinks it doesn't need him. But this isn't something for just for non-Christians. Sometimes we're too often too comfortable with the way we live, too sure of our own capabilities, and too dependent on our own will rather than throwing ourselves completely on God. Sometimes, therefore, God needs to show us we're wrong, to take away the things that we use to prop up our self-esteem and our self-confidence. And this suffering can be one of the ways that God brings us to Christian maturity. In Hebrews 12, 10 and 11, the image of a father disciplining his children is used. It's said, for they, our human fathers, disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Whatever it was, he was suffering from it, and he asked God to take it away. And in verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, you've got God's answer to Paul and Paul's response. So God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response so I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I'm weak, then I'm strong. And God can use suffering to make us more fruitful as well. Jesus used the illustration of pruning a vine in John 15 too, where he said every branch that bears fruits he prunes to make it bear more fruit. The gardeners will understand that one. Think about some of the most memorable testimonies you've heard. And I'm sure the ones that come to mind will be accounts of great trials and great tests that people went under. Great faith and great witness comes from church trials and tests. David Watson, a church leader who died from cancer, shortly before his death wrote, those who have experienced more of the love of God than anyone I've ever met have also endured more suffering. When you crush lavender, you find its full fragrance. When you squeeze an orange, you extract its sweet juice. In the same way, it is often through the pains and hurts that we suffer that we develop the fragrance and the sweetness of Jesus in our lives. And then there are times when God uses our suffering to bring about his good purpose. In Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. The ultimate example of this is Jesus. His suffering, facing opposition, misunderstanding, and rejection through his life on earth, and his death on the cross, were all necessary to fulfill the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. Necessary for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring each of us back into a relationship with God. But Jesus isn't the only example in the Bible. Think of Joseph. 
sold as a slave by his own brothers and taken to Egypt. He didn't see his family again for nearly 20 years. Yet his suffering as a slave in Egypt put him in a position to become the effective ruler of Egypt so that he could save God's people from that famine. After the event, Joseph could see why this had happened to him. As he said to his brothers towards the end of his life, even though you attended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. Genesis 50 verse 20. It's often only much later that we can see what God is doing. And we may never see this side of eternity, just as Joseph couldn't see what was intended until well after it had happened. Another example. It must have seemed strange to the early church that Stephen, a man full of the spirit and wisdom, a man full of grace and power, who did great wonders among the the people, was stoned to death. In Acts 6 and 7, we can read about that. They would have asked why Stephen's ministry, which was so powerful and so effective, had been cut short. Yet his witness, his death, had an impact on a young bystander called Saul. Acts 7, verse 58. A man who nevertheless approved of Stephen's death, which tells in Acts 8, 1. But this Saul later became a follower of Jesus in Acts 9. Saul who became the apostle to the Gentiles, we better know as Paul, and whose letters to churches form a significant part of the New Testament, work that has benefited millions through the years. Throughout church history, believers have suffered and died for their faith. They may not know why, but their witness in suffering has affected others, brought others to consider God, and were instrumental in bringing many into his kingdom. But God just doesn't let us suffer without recompense. In Luke 18, 29 and 30, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Think about Joseph in his slavery in Egypt. God was with him, blessing him, and enabling him to find favor with Potiphar in Genesis 29, 2 and 3. And then the chief jailer in Genesis 29, 21 to 23. They both came to rely and trust on Joseph because everything he did prospered. Or think about Job, the ultimate example of undeserved suffering. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, Job 41, verse 12. God may choose to compensate for our sufferings in our lives, as he did with Joseph and Job. But even if he doesn't, we have a greater promise in the hope of heaven. In Romans 8.18, Paul wrote, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. So what can we look forward to? Well, God himself tells us in Revelation 21.3 and 4, where John records, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. We're going to be in the presence of God. He's going to be there 
wiping those tears away from us like a father wipes the tears away from his small son. We need to look at our sufferings with that eternal perspective, not the immediate gratification that our society expects, but recognizing that God works on his own timeline, the one that is best for us. Part of that is to recognize that God suffers alongside us. And he has suffered alongside other people as well. So there may be no easy answer, no visible reason for suffering. Job never got an answer to why he lost so much. But as that video has just shown, God is not an impassive observer in the world. We can see this most clearly in the cross. It was there that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took our sin and bore the punishment and wrath of God that we deserve so that we could become part of God's family, adopted as sons and daughters, as it tells us in Ephesians 1.5. Joni Erickson, who we saw in the video earlier in the service, as a teenager, suffered a terrible diving accident that left her paralyzed, quadriplegic. After going through the normal gamut of emotions and rebellion following this, she gradually came to trust in the sovereignty of God and has a pow- had a powerful ministry for many years. But it was three years after her accident, she realized that Jesus could empathize completely with her. Because on the cross, he suffered a similar pain to her. He was unable to move, paralyzed by the nails that pinned him to that wood. So how do we respond to suffering? Well, if it's others that are suffering, we should try to avoid giving easy answers to their suffering because these rarely exist. Perhaps the most positive thing, thing we can do is put our arms around them and weep with those that weep, as Romans 12:15 tells us. Make ourselves available, not in our own strength, but in that of the God of all consolations who consoles us in all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. And if it's us that's suffering, we may be tempted to ask God to leave us alone, not to put us through the suffering, not to refine us, not to prune us. C.S. Lewis likened it to an artist working on a picture. If it's a quick sketch to amuse a child, the artist may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly what he meant. But over the great picture of his life, the work he loves, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless therefore give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. It's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we're wishing not for more love, but less. We're unlikely to know why we're suffering at the time we suffer. So we need to trust God. Trust that he has our best interests in heart and hold fast to our hope in Jesus to trust that as he promised in John 10, 28, he holds us safe in his hands and no one can snatch us away. And though the world may make us suffer or may even kill us, it can't change our certain and eternal destiny to be in God's presence forever. Matthew 10, verse 28. Hold fast to that. Keep that in mind in the troubles and trials that face you. We have a glorious future. Amen.